I attempted snowboarding or yeah, snowboarding as a child. Definitely not skis. I think by the time we were kids, it was like snowboarding was a thing or the tubing. Mm, yeah. Yep. Skis were like for old people or rich people from, I mean, being from Iowa, rural Iowa. What about you though? I did ski actually. Yeah. Yeah. You did city high uh-huh. while in high school or is this like yeah. somehow you got wrapped into it at a later age? No, it was high school. Um, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Swim team, skier. Yeah. You were the athlete. True. Were you good? I don't, I mean, I wasn't like great, but I did, I actually did own my own skis. So I was going to, that was my next question. I was going to ask how much equipment you owned or if you rented everything. I did it enough that it was worthwhile to own. Wow. Where did you go? Did you go like Colorado? Everywhere. Yeah. We, I went to Colorado a few times and then I went to Minnesota a couple of times and I went to Illinois a couple of times. Did you get into it? Because I know you have family in Colorado. Was that a thing or did you get into it because socially that was a thing? I was just social. Um, it was mostly church group ski yeah. trips. We did the snow, snow tubing ski trips. Right. Not ski trips, snow trips. I don't know. But we did the two. We were trashier. You were of high, you were more elevated. <laughs> I feel like that was just like every winter I would go on like a couple of those and then we also had a well-off family friends who had a place in Colorado. Of course. Nice. Welcome to Sex with Ghosts. I'm Bridget here with my skiing expert, Molly. Hello. And today we are talking avalanches as part of our December winter phenomenon series. So, so far this year or this year, this month, we did... uh, Northern Lights, we did Polar Vortex, and now we're doing Avalanches. Last week got a little dark, so this week will probably still be dark. Yeah. But I feel like we made an effort. Yeah. Well, in like the, yeah, like there there is some hope or maybe like some warning you could take from this. I don't know. Yeah. We're talking to the survivors instead of the dead guys. Though, if you guys listen to this and want to hear more, there were a couple stories that I thought might be good for Sex with Ghosts a little later on that we could always bring back. What do you mean? Uh, Including an avalanche ghost story. Oh. And an avalanche paranormal story. So, oh, what? But I did did not add them because they're like, I think they are episodes in themselves kind of thing. Okay. Wow. What a tease. Well, maybe we can bleed into January or something. Yeah. I think so because it will be winter for quite some time. Yeah. Unfortunately, guys, the bees kicked out the male bees early. And you know what that means? It's a long winter, according to TikTok. Wow. That's a fun story. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Even the ma- the male fetus bees were kicked out. They're like, 
see you later. You're taking up resources. It's going to be fucking cold. Uh, is that why we found a bee on our screen po- screen door? We have like a screen door oh. to the outside and there's like a bee de- like dead That's on That's funny it. you said that because we found like dead bees in our car. Oh, geez. Like in a weird place in the car too where you're like, how would they got in there? Um, anyways, let's get back to avalanches, <laughs> not dead bees. <laughs> so I'm going to start with the basics here. Not because you, the listener, are dumb, but mostly it was for my edification. I feel like you see an avalanche, you've heard of avalanches. You're like, oh, it's just stuff falling off a mountain. But there's a little more to it than that. I thought it It'd be good to like understand that part of it. Yeah, so. I, and I think that's an, an ex- especially an important part to know in case like you don't want people to be overly worried about avalanches, but you want to know them to know when an actual avalanche can happen. Yeah, and there's going to be some context for that where because like I think like growing up in Iowa, not around mountains or hills, really. An avalanche just seems like this mysterious thing. Yeah, yeah. But there's actually some signs and some some ways that you kind of be like, oh, this is probably going to lead to an avalanche. So it's not like people are completely naive to the phenomenon. Right. Uh, So during an avalanche, a mass of snow, rock, ice, soil, and other materials will slide swiftly down a mountainside, which is pretty obvious. But so the avalanche isn't just snow, but our most of our stories today will be snow related because... It's motherfucking winter. Yep. But it could just be rocks, you know? Uh, And when it is rocks or soil, we generally call those landslides. It's like the Fleetwood Mac song. Right. (laughs) So if it's snow, you actually call that a snow slide. And it's the most common kind of avalanche. And it can sweep downhill faster than the fastest skier. I like that statement. Because yeah. it's like you can't ski from it. it. Yeah, don't don't it's, even try. It's gonna get you. And it is cool to see those um like aerial footage of the avalanche. Oh yeah. They're yeah. Very, they're very scary and large. Yeah. Yeah. I think they're terrifying. Swift. Ugh. A snow avalanche begins when an unstable mass of snow breaks away from a slope. Yeah, that seems kind of obvious. The snow picks up speed as it falls downhill. Of course, uh, which then produces a river of snow. So I think that's like the videos you're talking about. Yeah. And a cloud of icy particles will rise into the air. And so as it's going downhill, it's going to pick up even more snow. And then you get to a point where it's large, it's fully developed, it's an avalanche, and it can weigh as much as a million tons. That's why people can die from these things. (laughs) Yeah. And it's going over 200 miles per hour. Also the reason. Yes. Yeah. Or 320 kilometers for our Euro listeners. We know you're out there. (laughs) Avalanches occur as layers in a snowpack slide off. A snowpack is simply layers of snow that build up in an area such as the side of a mountain. And in the winter, repeated snowfalls will build a snowpack dozens of meters or feet, yards thick. So we're talking about like a layered element and these layers can vary in thickness and texture. And because you have all these different layers, the bonds between the layers are actually pretty weak because it's not bonding because of the different textures 
And so like melted snow that refreezes may cause a slick coating of ice to form on the surface of a layer. So when you have other snow that falls on top of that, it just might slide off. It's not going to be compact. And so during a spring thaw, melted snow can seep through a snowpack, making the surface of a lower layer slippery. And then added weight or vibration can easily send the top layers of the snowpack hurtling downhill, thus creating the avalanche. It makes sense to me. And so aside from landslide, snowslide, we also have sloughs and slabs. A slough avalanche occurs when the weak layer of snowpack is on top. A slough is a small slide of dry powdery snow that moves as a formless mass. Sloughs are much less dangerous than the slab avalanches. A slab avalanche occurs when the weak layer lies lower down in the snowpack. This layer is covered with other layers of compressed snow. So when the avalanche is triggered, the weak layer breaks off, pulling all the layers on top of it down the slope. And these layers will tumble and fall in what looks like a giant block or slab. And once the slab avalanche starts, the slab will shatter into many separate blocks. I feel like I'm describing a video game. Yeah, yeah. These snow blocks will break up into even smaller pieces and some of the pieces will move into the air and become part of that cloud of icy particles. And the cloud will race downhill, obviously, at very high speeds. And the thickness and the speed of the slab avalanches make them a threat to everyone. In the mountains of the western United States, there are about 100,000 avalanches each year. And avalanches worldwide do kill more than 150 people. Dang. Uh, And these are mostly like snowbillers skiers and snowboarders yeah so it kills people but i have a story of someone who has survived one of these terrible cataclysmic events that's good ken wiley let me tell you about him i have a quote from him that says when you have really dry periods when you have rain when you have a real mixed bag then you end up with layers of the snowpack this year and i think this was last winter but it was like march of 2023 this year is a weak layer of crystallized snow like sugar in the raw which is buried deep the thing about a deep instability is that it's harder to detect and it's really hard to predict how or when it'll be triggered we call them low probability high consequence events and that's exactly what 2003 was now before we go any further i wonder if Now that we're talking about it like this, if meteorologists technically could kind of track this kind of thing and maybe predict it a little better, because a lot of it would have to do with like, I would think the temperature, like, yeah, I mean, it's fluctuation. It's going to be like the temperature, like you're saying, temperature and fluctuation, but it's also going to be like the vibration and the triggering. Mm, Yeah, that's true. Event. So like... If that triggering event doesn't occur, then you just have like this very hazardous situation. But if something happens, it could just <laughs> snowball. <How? laughs> uh, Wiley had pointed out that 
at this time in 2003 that snow guides were really getting nervous about conditions. He's quoted as saying, that morning, the morning when shit went down, he says, I was putting on my ski boots on with dread. I didn't know that we were pushing it too much. Knowing that there's a hazardous condition is different than actually taking steps to mitigate the particular hazard. So he's kind of aware, like maybe they should take it easy, but he's, I think at that time of the incident, uh, it probably felt more like, oh, if it happens, it happens. Yeah, but it's also like, I don't know, maybe we need to incentivize like stopping this before it happens. <laughs> right. And there, I think there, when we get to, there may have been a lesson that was learned. Ah, You see, Ken Wiley was an apprentice guide leading skiers to go up a slope in Ravelstoke, British Columbia. When he heard the telltale of an avalanche. And so that's the trigger I was talking about, or I guess it would be thereafter, where you hear percussive sound of massive snow shifting underfoot. Uh, he says, this was the deepest woof you could possibly imagine. The whole slope settled with all of us on it, Oof. and then it fractured and started moving. This sounds so terrifying. Yeah, that does sound very, very terrifying. Wiley was able to surf on the slab of snow long Whoa. enough to get his skis off and prepare for the snow to swallow him up. Now, as someone who doesn't really, I've never snow skied. Is that easy to do? You're wearing boots. Your boots latch into the skis. Is that how yeah, that works? Yeah, but you could definitely get like, it's more of like a clicking mechanism, like and you, you can use your poles to unclick yourself out of the boot. So I assume that's what he did. Though, I mean... Out of the boot or out of the ski? Out, You would be out of the ski. So you'd be like... I would assume you'd just be doing that click to... So you would be so on your feet. So you'd still have boots on. You'd still have boots on, but you'd be without the long, yeah. upward ski. He's quoted as saying, but my clients were all exposed, were hit by a wall of snow, and they didn't have a chance to respond. This was an avalanche that happened in January 2003. 13 people were swept away by it. Seven died. Ugh. R.I.P. R.I.P. Wiley himself was buried for 45 minutes ah. before being airlifted to a hospital. He's quoted as saying, it's kind of a luck of the draw, and I was fortunate enough to have an air pocket when things came to a standstill. That air pocket is why I survived, which is absolutely terrifying because I have even more questions about this air pocket. Like, oh, you, you wouldn't I'll be able to make air. an air pocket. Oh, uh, no. I, yes. In my story, I'll talk about the air pocket because it is a very important part of the avalanche. Oh, wow. As I said, there is a lesson to be learned because Wiley now uses what he learned from the avalanche to teach others. And he is the owner and operator of his own risk management training company, Archetypal. He said skiers should choose lower angle terrain if they're more comfortable and not be influenced by messaging that steep, deep and steep is best. He also, in this article I was reading, had mentioned that it's important to trust your intuition to speak up when necessary to listen when others voice their concerns. He says, 
accidents happen when groups are fragmented and that can be avoided if they work together as well as working on working with the environment they intend to ski in. Uh, He goes on to say, I think that the mountains are trying to teach us patience and they're trying to teach us to play our cards really well to save it for another day. That's that's a good story. I, I also have a story from someone named Abby Cooper from an avalanche in on December 26th of 2014. Oh, nice. Classic. In her story says that she had been taking avalanche kind of training classes like Ken Wiley teaches now for 10 years. Wait, so she was she taking these as like an avid skier? Yes. Okay. Um, she uh, was out on the slopes for cat skiing, which is a form of guided backcountry skiing. Which um, kind of sounds like what Ken Wiley does as well. And it what's sounds, it called? It's called uh, cat skiing, like a kitty. So what it is is rather than hiking or using a chairlift or helicopter, skiers and boarders are transported up a mountain in a snow cat, which is one of those oh. machines. I feel like that alone is like. Should I be doing this? Yes, definitely. <laughs> like that. And, and I think that's why like people like her who want to do this sort of more dangerous skiing boarding thing will take the avalanche lessons. Like what kind of trauma are you trying to escape? Yeah. Like what did her parents do to her that she was just like, I can't feel unless I'm absolutely fucking terrified. Well, it does seem like, I mean, even like when we were young skiing, like people talked about that kind of stuff. Like, oh, the fresh powder is the best and you have to get up early (laughs) in the morning and be the first one on the slope. And it's like, why is it like every single fucking hobby is like, you can only do this early in the yeah, morning. I feel like yeah. people say that about golf. They say it about fishing. It's like, oh, what what do you like to do? Oh, you like to paint? Everybody knows if you were painting six in the morning, yeah. that's the only time to paint. <laughs> it's like, what the fuck are you talking about? But it's going to, like, since they need, feel this need to, like, be in this, like, pristine, yeah. untouched yeah. snow, they're going off. It's gross. It's It's like, that's why people are obsessed with virgins. Yeah, it's the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Sickos, snow perverts. That's what I'm calling them. And also, I learned something because um, Abby Cooper was actually a split border. Split what border. What does that even mean? This is when a normal snowboard splits into two halves, and that's a thing. Yeah, apparently it's a thing. Yeah. Okay. And the halves become skis for traveling uphill or going like across. But then when you are going down the slope or before you go down the slope, the rider removes the skins and attaches two skis together, transforming it into a snowboard. I feel like this is the bisexuals (laughs) of winter sports here. Yeah. Yeah. She says, similar to Ken Wiley, before arriving at the skiing operation, she had considered the conditions and her gut was telling her not to be there. But she wasn't the one in charge and she chose to trust the owner and the experienced guides rather than fight them. I mean, that's that's fair. I do that every single fucking day of my life when I go to work. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of us do. But I think 
Especially like, in- oh, that's your idea yeah. to take care of this. Okay, yeah. Who am I? Who I mean, I definitely have a better, more efficient idea, but you're very confident <laughs> and very much pushing your agenda. So let's just go with what you say. Yeah, I just like part of me worries that like these kind of stories are like, oh, the capitalism and like the companies that run these things just need to keep pushing people out and well that's definitely a thing i also think though it's like when something bad happens i don't know this is kind of this is my little fucking mental problem but i think when something bad happens a lot of times we reflect on those events and we're like trying to find yeah i i agree like oh i knew that was that, bad yeah. i knew that and i do i mean i'm the fucking queen of right. oh i thought so right yeah i think i think so too and it's like if nothing happens and like that you never would have had the reflection yeah. and exactly then it's just have. like whatever yeah but um she had done two runs in the powdered snow but her subconscious told her that the packed snow wasn't safe and on the third run, she saw the first person go and then heard the dreaded womp. <laughs> yes, exactly. What Bridget said. She described it like the ticking time bomb for an avalanche, which uh, is started by the womp. Um, and no one knows how many seconds are left on the clock. Oh, so- my God. It's like it's yeah. like that. Actually, I was thinking about this the other night. I just watched that movie. It has nothing to do with this movie, but it's because I was watching this movie. I started thinking about it. The Leave the World Behind. I haven't seen it. Okay. The ending will infuriate you, but I think it's a very fun movie. But there's a scene where they're on the beach and I know it's very suspenseful. So this doesn't happen. So I'm not spoiling anything. I was like, oh my God, what if a tsunami happened? Uh, That's why it's so suspenseful. But tsunami is like, and this is not a true analogy at all because we haven't even done a tsunami episode, but I feel like it's the water version of an avalanche. Mm. And if either one of those events occurs, you would just be like, I'm fucked. That's it. Good night. Yeah, it is kind of one of those things where it's pretty hard to get away like once you realize what's happening it's like well good night and goodbye tell my mom i loved her so instantly she turns to the guide who was 10 feet away and asks, did you hear that and he says no what yeah and she kind of freaks out and then explains to him oh i heard the womp so soon he was asking her for help to help the mid-slope skiers in her line of sight, navigate their way to safety. Oh, well, that's, I thought you were going to say like he gaslit her. No. So that's a good, uh, yeah, it was a good guy at least, but I mean, cause you started with, no, I didn't hear the sound. I was yeah. like, oh my God. So they're trying to get the skiers who are already going down out of the way, but then the avalanche starts to move. Uh, it's slow at first, but then the slab is free and moving towards them. Oh my God. Um, she, what do you did- do? Like you can't stop, drop and roll. Yeah, no. Um, uh, this must be part of the um, training because she also try- tries to free herself from the board below her. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, it must be easier. Like, like, okay, so if the snow gets you, yeah. you're basically immobile. 
Right. But right. If you at least get your feet out of the skis, you're going to be more mobile than I, if you I, have those fucking skis on. I think so. But the dense slab rushes past her legs so quickly that it's impossible to free her board. And well, that's what you get for being a bisexual boarder. <laughs> she loses her footing and starts rolling. She said oh. her, her head hit a small tree, which felt much larger at the time because she was moving so quickly, obviously. Yeah. And then her body stops moving, but the snow continues to rush by. So that's when the danger starts happening. So luckily, she has 10 years of avalanche training. So she pulls one hand tight into her body and covers her mouth while moving her fingertips to keep the snow out of her mouth. And then with the other arm... Yes, this is like... That's a thing you have to worry about? Oh, my God. (laughs) I would just be fucked. Well, you just have to remember this. (laughs) Stick your fingers in your mouth. Um, So her other arm is waving above her head and around her face in large movements to keep the snow from setting up around her. So she's like... Oh. Wildly waving... This arm in a large circle. That's so, wild. Yes. So when the snow stops, um, she had gotten a little bit of snow in her mouth, but t- she did have a little bit of an air pocket. She, she tells herself not to panic, but immediately she starts to panic. But yeah, you're stuck in the snow. Oh, my God. But knowing that she's panicking and knowing that she's not supposed to panic, she starts by trying to just breathe slowly. However, yeah, breathing is in any yeah. sort of panic situation. Yeah. Think about your breathing. I think we talked about that during the grounding episode. But yes, definitely. It's a um, good tip. However, like uh, Bridget was saying, with the millions of tons that snow weighs at that point, she is hardly she's only able to take extremely shallow breaths because there's no movement. There's just no there's no movement. Yeah. Uh, but she is pretty much immediately hearing uh, someone say that they've got a, quote, visual on Abby. So she knows that someone's there. So that would be like one really, I'm sure, helpful and, you know, helps keep your. Oh, yeah. You're going to have hope. Yes. If you hear your name. Yeah. You're either like, I'm already dead. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. Headed to the great light or I'm alive and I'm hearing my name, but it's enough for me to like be present. Right. So she feels the snow begin to clear away, but unfortunately it's just her head and the snow (laughs) is still crushing her body. She still has snow in her mouth, so she can't speak or tell anyone that she can't breathe. So how is the snow like not melting? I think because of the ice particles. Yeah. Because I think be. it gets like pretty hard. That's crazy. Well, she's not going to be dehydrated. Good for her. So she tells, um, I mean, she she tells a story like it's very drawn out. Like I'm, I can see things, but I can't breathe and I can't tell them that I can't breathe. And the guide is like on the walkie talkie talking to like making sure Did everyone you see else a video is okay. Of this? No, no. This is just oh. in her description of the story. Yeah. yeah. But and she she talks about how like it felt like forever that he's like talking instead of helping her get out of the snow. That's fair. That's how I would feel. (laughs) Jesus Christ. But luckily, another person is there 
And this person helps clear the snow, which at least allows her to clear her arm, which then she clears her own mouth of the snow. Then she can say, clear my chest. You got to be your own advocate. (laughs) Yeah. Even in times where you are almost dying. Um, She says she's kind of moving in and out of consciousness. But by the time she's fully cleared from the avalanche, she's able to stand from pure adrenaline. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I believe that. And so she's able to help any other people out. uh, But luckily, no one else was fully buried or hurt. Just her? Just her was buried fully. The one person. Yeah, who actually heard it. (laughs) Heard the avalanche, who was taking avalanche classes. Is the one that got sucked by an avalanche. But I think it's because she's at the top. So she was able to be like, hey, people move to the side because that's actually I'll I'll talk about that in my tips. But like, I'm sure she was able to get other people out of the way. But then like she sacrificed herself. Yeah, kind of by doing that. She's able to like survive for the rest of the day on like pure adrenaline. Like they don't go out again, but, you know, they're going back down the mountain and going home and stuff. Okay. And then the next day she goes to the hospital and they find a number of injuries, including a compressed disc, severe whiplash, a concussion, and some bruised and broken ribs. (laughs) Compressed disc is like super bad. And whiplash. Yeah, it sounds very, very, very bad. I mean, concussion is bad, but a lot of people have come back from a concussion. But That's true. Whiplash, I'll be like, that could be reoccurring for the rest of your life. Same with a compressed disc. You compress a disc. I knew a guy who did that and it was just like his life was over. Oh, really? Yeah. I was like, good luck, man. And I don't even think he even had a real injury that caused it. It was just like he just went to the doctor and they were like, yeah, you have a weird thing going on with your disc. Dang. Yeah. Here's her quote from the the story that I read. There is no end to this story. Each day I add to it. I cannot conclude by claiming that my body and my mind are perfectly healed oh or at peace. Oh my God. Is this a white woman? Probably, but she, I mean, she, that's true. That's, that's pretty traumatic, you know? Yeah, but that's a pretty like, yeah. Bolt like, oh, I'm never going <laughs> to heal from this. And it's like, Okay, bisexual snowboarder, <laughs> like relax. <laughs> Some people are out here getting uh, molested. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, but she can't tell you what she has learned. Uh, quote I have learned to trust my instincts. I've learned that every voice matters, including my own, and that speaking up never hurts. Oh, are you? This is some white woman's <laughs> propaganda, Molly. <laughs> Was it worth it? No. But through the experience, I have learned the value of life and each breath that sustains it. This is some like live, laugh, work. (laughs) I hope she writes a book, gets a movie. It's true. And like throughout this story. I mean, I shouldn't shit on an avalanche, uh, but come on. She keeps she she says multiple times, like, I'm not trying to blame anyone, but it's like I know, but then like saying that alone is like <laughs> okay, yeah, really convincing. But I did find some good tips to be to avoid. Avoid the avalanche. Like Burgess said, avoid terrain that's sloped between thirty and forty-five degrees, as well as gullies and ravines. Now, isn't that most of the skiing terrain? I would imagine that but i mean you were saying like 
it there's also like you don't it doesn't have to be the steepest slope you can still yeah. enjoy it yourself have to be steep yeah. and deep folks <laughs> you can go to iowa ski so if you're caught you're taught to swim to safety that's so, what i i had yeah. figured but yeah. then i was like am i just making that up no so you uh put your feet downhill in a sitting position to absorb the shocks of the obstacles. You ditch your poles, your skis, and you use your hands and arms in a swimming motion to move to the surface and stay there. Oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But uh, you are supposed to prep your own air pocket. So when the avalanche starts slowing down, you get your palms up to your forehead, elbows out, and start creating a cocoon around your face. Oh, that's where Abby failed. Yeah, perhaps. And you're also supposed to take a deep breath and hold it. The more your lungs can expand, the better. Yeah, which also, I mean, I got, I'm not blaming Abby, but I was curious <laughs> as to why her mouth was even open for somebody who took classes. Yeah, I mean, you might be right. When the avalanche stops, you'll have more space to breathe in the pocket you've created. Space is time, and time increases the odds of rescuers finding you before it's too late. Ugh. Uh, I hate to say it, but uh, surviving an avalanche is actually very rare. According to Jake Hutchinson, an avalanche rescuer and safety instructor in Utah, he is quoted as saying such. And recent studies show large-scale avalanches might be on the increase because of climate change, uh, Hutchinson says. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, I, I think that um, just because of the the fluctuations, like we talked about before, the temperature fluctuations. Yeah, and it's even like, I mean, it's probably less predictable than it has been. Yeah, too. that's true, too. Yep. Um, but Hutchinson's quoted as pointing out that's the hardest part about avalanche rescue world is that we very rarely can get people there in time to make it alive fine. Realistically, people have a pretty good chance of survival if they could be fully dug out in the first 15 to 30 minutes of burial, which is a very tiny window. It really is. Especially if you have to go up a mountain. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I would imagine like you'd really want your instructors. Like if you ever really want to do this, make sure your instructors are like well versed in the actual rescuing, because I think they're going to be the ones, the people around you. The experienced people are going to be the ones who are going to save you or you're not going to get saved. Yeah. And Hutchison also point out, so the polar vortex, we talked about how it's mostly hypothermia and like frostbite that kills you. But in an avalanche, it is the lack of oxygen. Right. So that's why I'm like, tell me more about these air pockets. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think. Gosh, that's and that's so crazy because it's like you wouldn't think that. You would think that there would be air being able to get through, but I guess with all those layers and or like the ice you particles. Would be able to like you've you've played in snow. And yeah. Snow yeah. can be very malleable. Right. Yep. And it melts. So you would think like, oh, I should be able to like shimmy a hole in the snow and create an air pocket, but that's like really not it because of all the layers. Yeah. Yeah. Um Hutchinson actually recounted in the article um, where he was a lead rescuer 
in 2004 for an avalanche. And the initial call indicated that 28 people were buried. 20 different organizations came to help look through the 40 acres of debris. And 40 acres would be about the size of 30 football fields. Ah, that's a lot. Yeah. It was a four-day operation that resulted in only one person being buried and found deceased on the second day. The other 27 skiers were presumed dead, actually escaped the burial, and were only enveloped in the avalanche cloud, not the avalanche itself. That's very lucky. Yeah, that's insanely lucky. He explained most avalanche fatalities come down to human error. 90% of avalanche incidences are tracked triggered by the victim or somebody in the victim's party, which should tell you that it's really our fault. It's really Abby's <laughs> fault. Anyways, <laughs> going back country skiing without proper equipment, without the proper training and making just one bad decision can make the difference in a life or death situation. Yeah. Hutchinson says... You're walking out there to ski and you don't take at least a basic avalanche course. You might as well be crossing a highway with a blindfold on. You might make it across. You might not. Dang, that's harsh. And yeah, it may sound that way. But this is after more than 50 avalanche rescues that Hutchinson has been a part of. He says that there's only been a handful of live finds. So Ah. he's saying this as an experienced dude. And he says, I think people underestimate either the potential of a slope, like what kind of avalanche it could create, or they're overconfident. They have overconfidence in what I call margins, margin between safe and hazardous. According to Noah, who we've talked about before on this podcast, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, most avalanches occur. See I think there's some connection between tsunamis. Maybe we do that next. Most avalanches occur during or some just after snowstorms on the slopes, like you were saying, between 30 and 45 degrees. So the other thing to be aware of is just after or during a snowstorm. Yeah. And that's kind of like the, I'm sure some people are like, I mean, that's the fresh powder thing too. Like, yeah. uh, But that's exactly And the temperature change. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's true. So how do you feel about skiing? No. Well, I mean, I'm definitely, I mean, I was already kind of not really going to ski again unless I like get fit again, probably to a level that is much higher than my current level. Yeah. Don't, don't get back into skiing. Yeah. It's classes and very dangerous. Yeah. Seems like it. Also, I don't really like cold that much. Oh, I fucking hate the cold now. Yeah. Yeah, it bums me out. So that sounds pretty difficult as well. That's funny. I was thinking about that. I'm driving home tonight. I was like, it's. I feel so shitty. And then I was like, oh, it's because it's so dark and cold and you have to go home. Well, Molly, thank you for going down this mountain with me. (laughs) Ah, so many puns. So many. Where can people find you? You could find me on Twitter and Instagram. No, God, I, I just said that. I haven't been on Twitter in in months and it's not called Twitter anymore. You can find me on Blue Sky at Molly M or Instagram at Molly MM9. How about you? You can find me on Blue Sky at Bridget F. You can find me on Instagram and I still call it Twitter. 
at Bridget underscore suck it. You can find this podcast on Twitter at sex with goes underscore, or you can leave a rating and review wherever you get this podcast. You can further support us at patreon.com slash sex with ghosts. Uh, thanks for listening and bye. Bye.